afternoon. My name is Linda Evans and I'm a partner in the Competition Regulation and Trade Group at Herbert Smith Freehills. On behalf of the firm, I'm delighted to welcome you all here today. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today we are very pleased to be hosting a discussion on the role of consumer law in our society. It's fair to say that there's been a significant evolution of Australian consumer law over the last 10 years. And all the signs are that there'll be a continuing evolution over the next 10 years. We're delighted to be joined by four panelists today who have a range of different perspectives. So we're hoping for a lively discussion. Starting first with Michael Ackland, who is Group Executive Consumer and Small Business at Telstra. Michael's focus is to create and deliver the best experiences possible for consumers and small business customers. So he's very well equipped to speak on the topic. Michael joined Telstra in 2016 and has held a range of senior executive roles, always with a retail and consumer focus. Delia Rickard is the Deputy Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Delia has been the Deputy Chair since 2012 and her passion for consumer protection has led to her holding a variety of senior roles, primarily at the ACCC, but also at the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. Delia sits on the ACCC's Competition Exemptions, Communications, Consumer Data Right, Enforcement and Compliance and Product Safety Committees, a very full load. We are also joined by Erin Turner, who is Director of Campaigns and Communications at the Consumer Organisation Choice. Erin originally joined Choice as a Policy and Campaigns Advisor and previously worked in policy and government relations roles for a range of other not-for-profits. She's also a board member of the Australian Financial Complaints Authority and the Chair of the Financial Rights Legal Centre Board. And last but by no means least is my partner, Patrick Gay, who is also a partner in the Competition Regulation and Trade Practice and advises on a broad range of competition and consumer law issues. A bit about the format for today. We really want this to be as interactive as possible. There's a chat function on your screen and we invite you to post questions into the chat and then I will pose them to the panellists as we progress. We're not having set speeches, but rather a series of topics and questions that will be posed to the panellists. So we're looking forward to your contribution to make this as engaging as possible. If I start with the evolution of consumer law issues, consumer protection provisions predate the introduction of the Australian consumer law. Delia, from the ACCC's perspective, did the consolidation of provisions into the Australian consumer law change the approach that the ACCC took? And has it changed the relative weighting and, of consumer and competition law provisions? Hi, Linda. Hi, everyone. I'm talking to you from Ngunnawal country, i.e. Canberra, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yes and no. So I was at the Commission for most of the fellows years. I skipped all the Graham Samuels years and then back for most of um, Rod's term. And I'd have to say that both the chairs I worked with and the commissions of those times were truly dedicated to consumer protection and really did do their best to give equal weight to both the competition side of a shop and the consumer side of a shop. That said, 
it has to be said that the ACL made it a lot easier for us. Under the old Trade Practices Act, you were very limited in the recourse you could have unless you wanted to go to court, when you had to go criminal, with the CDPP, it was slow, it was torturous. So it is much more user-friendly, if I can put it that way, to be able to use the ACL. And we're a bigger organisation these days, taking on more matters and therefore more at consumer matters, I'd say. Thanks very much. Erin, from the perspective of choice as a consumer organisation, do you think the position of consumers has improved over the last 10 years? And if so, what do you think has driven that change? It's always very tempting as an advocate to say, no, we've got so much more work to do. Uh, but um, kind of stepping back um, from my, my natural inclination, I, I do think there has been an improvement. Um, it imparts a really positive developments in the law. Um, but I also see a few cultural shifts at a company level. I, I think we're starting to see companies think a bit more in the medium and longer term about their customers rather than necessarily focus on aggressive short-term financial goals, which is often when you start to see companies cause some quite direct and acute consumer harm. Um, and some other really great positives we've seen over the last decade, but I'd say particularly the last few years, we've got a wonderfully proactive regulator. Um, uh, the ACCC takes on cases to test the limits of the law. And I think that that helps businesses know where they stand. It helps advocates know where potential for reform is, but it, it just helps us have that more certainty in the law and what consumer rights are. It, it sets consumers up really well. Um, and kind of, it's a bit of a negative, but I, I do think it's a positive. We've had a series of scandals and issues around consumer problems, but I actually think most acutely in the financial services space. But regardless of what sector it sits in, I think issues like we had with the Banking Royal Commission, it forces companies to come to terms with what they're doing. And I hope think more deeply about how they treat their own customers. So um, all of those factors, I, I think, means that we are starting to see, particularly some large companies, treat customers better and consumers get a better deal. But advocate hat back on, more work to do. And can I vote a bit on that for just one second? Because this is a really rare piece of legislation. Just before it came into practice, a huge national consumer survey, consumer and business survey was done, asking people about their understanding of rights, both business and consumers, their confidence levels, etc. And there's a commitment to repeating it every five years. So it was done again in 2016. And we did see improvements in both business and consumers were happier with where things were at, still a long way to go, and we'll do it again very soon once we get through the COVID period. So it's nice to actually have a real measurement for once, about at least how people are perceiving things. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that is interesting is, I was going to ask you, you know, do you think that the law is in some respects too complex for consumers to actually understand what their rights are? Um, or do you think that the Australian consumer law has been, you know, a fundamental game changer in that regard? Look, I'll say that we, we see evidence that consumers understand they've got rights and they particularly understand that they've got rights in terms of consumer guarantees. I wouldn't say that all of them do and I wouldn't say those that say they do fully understand them. But we see the second most popular page on our website as being the consumer guarantees and people come to it constantly. So I think they're better informed than they used to be and they are using them. 
Um, I, like a lot, a lot of people who work on consumer issues, sometimes sit across the financial services and the consumer space. And uh, I think in comparison to what we have in the Corporations Act or the ASIC Act, the consumer law is beautiful. It's easy to explain, you know, don't <laughs> lie to people, don't sell, you know, don't, if something's unsafe, take it off the shelves. Um, would love the clarity we have in the consumer law over in financial services. Um, but we do still see issues with people's knowledge and ability to use the law. I, I often think we then leap to education might be the solution. We might, there are other options there. And I think often that can come from businesses themselves. How do they engage with the law and make sure people receive what they're owed rather than expect people to know the law and enforce it themselves. Michael, from your perspective within a large organisation, how have you seen um, organisations change their approach to consumer law issues over the last decade? Yeah, and thanks, Linda. And I think, you know, Erin's comments before are really valid. There has been a, a really significant change in, I think, how a lot of corporates think about those medium and long-term outcomes for customers and, and really um, complying with the law should be should be an outcome in many ways, not an input of that strategy. And I think we're seeing that play out more and more. And it really does go down to culture. Um, so if you think about the wonderful thing about the Australian consumer law is it's it's it is easy to understand. It's principles based, um, and it's something that you can drive into the culture of an organisation that that's what we're there for and that we want to look after customers. And so there's there's things in the culture that are sort of obvious the way you talk about incentives and the way you talk about targets and 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 the way that you um, encourage your staff to present themselves to customers and 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 the things that they balance out there's other things that are that are harder that sort of that get in the way in terms of the way some you know legacy systems or data issues or other things work where you end up with inadvertently um, leading to those outcomes and that's where the culture becomes so important because what you need across a a very large organisation, not only do you need the culture of understanding what's right, uh, what's right and what's wrong, and, and Australian consumer law is, is helpful for that, you also need the culture of people being willing to call things out, being willing to see where, where, where things are going wrong, where there may not be intent and looking for ways to, to do that. And I think that's what you, you look for. They're, they're, I think there's been a very big change in the way lots of sectors have thought about, particularly selling. Um, and, and that's been true in financial services. I think it's incredibly true. It's been very true for Telco. And I think it's been very true for Telstra in rethinking around the way you do that and what's important and all those elements that can create cultural outcomes that, uh, that, that, that don't give you those right outcomes. I, I think that the only other bit I'd sort of I've add to that and it is just how we think about principles versus prescriptive based um, regulations and the ACL is not the only it's not it's not it's not the only device that's that, that drives into consumer protection and and you know really a great example for me is is for example when uh, and this idea about how do you help customers understand their rights in a particular contract in a particular thing and I take when we sell a, a contract on the NBN to a consumer you know, I've got uh, the agreement with the customer that's prescribed by the, the Telecommunications Protection Code. I've got the critical information summary by the Telecommunications Protection Code. I've got a key NBN key fact sheet, which is a an ACMA determination. They all sort of prescribe format and length and have subtly overlapping and different requirements. So while they're all, the intent of all of them is great in terms of disclosure, 
the customer has to get all three and then determine for themselves why they're getting different things explained in different ways. And so, so I think there's a, you know, the, the, the Australian consumer law, and as you said, being easy to understand, I think is important, but we still have a lot of other, particularly prescriptive regulation on the how that, that, that plays into it. And that can be difficult and confusing in a large organisation in terms of making sure we get everyone with the right focus. Um, and prescriptive, you know, prescriptive things, you can have the, the intent can be right, but you can fail on some of the prescriptive elements and that can be frustrating, particularly as you, as you go down into an organisation and trying to make sure you really want to focus them on what's important um, and what are the key things they need to think about in really complex customer interactions, right? Because every person's different. So, yeah, I mean, that's it, it, the point is that that change in focus, I think, is 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 really significant. And I think more and more companies, and I see it see it ourselves, have deeply internalised how important this is for our, you know, for for medium and longer term customer outcomes. And um, and and I think the ACMA and the A Sorry, the um, Australian Consumer Law gives you those principles in a way that's really easy to understand. Thanks very much, Michael. A question from our audience that Delia and um, Patrick might like to reflect on, which is, you know, how does the Australian consumer position compare with that in other jurisdictions and how are Australian consumers better off than in other jurisdictions like the UK and the US? Who wants to go? You go, Patrick, first. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that you know the ACCC. I'm sure we're going to talk about reform and so forth. I mean, when they're thinking about unfair contract terms and what the regulations and penalties are in respect of something which is unfair, which I will say, you know, despite consumer guarantees, is something which I think is just inherently imprecise. Um, the uh, uh, you know the ACCC's position is well. Uh, perhaps the rules are harder or harsher in the UK and the US in respect of things which are unfair. I would say that one reason why consumers might be better off if you don't look at kind of from a purely legal perspective is just the focus that the ACCC has, both in terms of uh, its, it, it really is a body which occupies this sort of imagination of, you know, the man on the street or, um, or the or the business community in a way which I don't think that the equivalent regulators necessarily have in other jurisdictions, and I think that is something which is a benefit uh, to consumers as a whole. Delia mentioned the sort of the website and people kind of checking on the consumer guarantees and so forth. Uh, the FTC has a website and so forth. I don't think it would be as apparent to the average consumer in the US as to where he or she would go to sort of see what their rights are and be able to then sort of exercise those rights. So I do think the the way in which the ACCC sort of looms large in the kind of cultural imagination and in the business community in Australia does benefit, not just in terms of when they're taking enforcement action, but in terms of the education role and so forth. I look I would say we're better off in some ways and worse off in some other ways. Um, we have penalties, and it's amazing how many overseas jurisdictions do not have serious penalty provisions. Um, and we're very vocal, and I think that is also good for consumers. However, there's things that you have they have in the US, the Europe, UK, 
which we're way behind on. So in, the, in Europe, UK, they have a general safety provision. Our product safety system is entirely reactive. I mean, it is just horrendous that we have to wait for a serious injury or death to really be empowered to take action against an unsafe product. And there just aren't the incentives there. So that's something we'd really like to have. And likewise, um, certainly in, well, in the US since the 1930s and now in Europe, they have an unfair practices provision, which Patrick was talking about earlier on. And I think particularly as we enter this digital age, it's something that we really need. It's certainly something the ACCC is advocating for, because we can really just, our, our act has the word fairness scattered all the way through it. But when you get beneath the headings, it's really prohibitions on misleading and deceptive, unconscionable, and we all know how the courts love to be consistent on that, and um, unfair contract terms. And if you look at what's happening in the digital age, just well, simple things like, for example, subscription traps and easy to get into, impossible to get out of. You know, we should be able to do something there, but if they haven't misled us, um, we're really quite stymied. So many ways we have lots of great things, but that we'd, we're greedy, we'd like more. Thanks very much. We've touched there on the question of enforcement, and I think Australia has been very much, um, as Patrick and Delia have both remarked, at the forefront of um, raising the profile of, of consumer law. And Rod Sims has been a strong advocate for ensuring that consumer law and competition law have equal billing in all respects. Um, and recently we've seen a ramp up in terms of the penalties for consumer law matters. We saw the $125 million um, penalty in the Volkswagen matter, and just last week the ACCC has been seeking $90 million penalty for misleading and deceptive conduct in the Trivago matter. I wonder if um, each of the speakers perhaps could just talk a little bit about you know, the role of pecuniary penalties in consumer law matters. Is, are the current levels that we seem to be moving to really getting to be truly excessive? Um, what are the implications or have they been too low in the past? Where do you think those things are sitting? And perhaps, um, Delia, I could start with you. Look, thanks, Linda. We really welcomed um, it when the legislation was introduced to make penalties for consumer protection offences equivalent to those of competition. And our bottom, and because it, it gives us great flexibility to scale up and down depending upon the gravity of the conduct, the size of the entity, a range of factors. But our bottom line has always been and will continue to be that penalties have to be sufficiently serious that they can't be seen as the cost of doing business. And I think too often in the past when penalties were quite small, people would make a calculated um, guess. I'm not saying that everyone did that because there's also reputational harm at any level and no no especially big entity wants to see that. But if we're going to have specific and general deterrence, you need to be able to scale penalties um, so that they in fact do hurt and send a good deterrence message. Um, but also, if it's a very small entity, you can bring them right down to the other end of the scale. So I think we've got the flexibility to have a real impact with the new civil penalties regime. Michael, from your perspective, how do you see yeah. what is an enormous range in this sort of amounts of penalties that can be awarded? Well, I, I, I mean, I think I would have a similar view. The way to look at it is penalties serve multiple purposes. You know, they should be there to deter, they should be there to punish, but they you should also have enough flexibility to use the way they're applied to incentivise the right behaviour in terms of self-reporting and contrition and remediation and 
um, and all of those um, kind of things. And so a bigger range, I think, gives gives that. And and you know, I think from a perspective of a corporate, if we do something wrong, we expect we expect to be punished, but also to have enough flexibility in the way that those um, those penalties are applied to, as I said, sort of encourage the right behaviour in terms of self-reporting and response and 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 actions. And I think um, you know, if something's being self-reported through controls that the company has itself has taken action in terms of remediation, has done that in a in a proactive and a substantial way, you know, that should play into to how those um, penalties are applied and, and having that upper end as the as the true, as as you said, Delia, is not just the cost of doing business. I think as long as we apply that consistently across across industries and players, I think um, they, they play an important role. And they should be proportionate to harm. And so bigger and smaller companies do different levels of, of, of harm just to, based on their scale and the number of customers they interact with. Can I perhaps explore um, issue and invite perhaps Patrick and Erin to comment on this? I mean, to play devil's advocate, having an enormous range of penalties, um, could it actually discourage self-reporting? Because there's a lot of uncertainty about where you'll land on the spectrum um, if you self-report, if the penalty could be really quite small or really could be absolutely enormous. Um. Linda, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, um, there is an uncertainty about what the penalties are. And I think government has decided, rightly or wrongly, that the penalty for all things should be $10 million or, you know, 10% of Australian group turnover. And I'm not sure whether that, you know, we can have a discussion about where the penalties ultimately lie. But but when we're talking about consumer law contraventions, when we're talking about representations, you know, each single representation could be said to be a, a separate contravention. And so in the most recent proceedings uh, with Travago, the ACCC in submissions is looking for 90 million and is basically saying, well, that is a very uh, small penalty because the maximum penalty under the statute, it would be hundreds of billions of dollars given the multiple thousands of representations which were made. And I'm just not sure that's an appropriate starting point. And I think it confuses people and it confuses the discussions with the ACCC when we're talking about, you know, what is the actual range of penalties? And I'm not, I, I mean, I strongly think that the maximum penalties, whereas they certainly focus the mind, do a disservice to the business community because you're having a discussion with the ACCC, which first starts off saying, you know, not what are the um, you know, appropriate range of penalties, but you almost instantaneously get this, the maximum for what you've done could be $100 billion. And that clearly isn't a proper way to start and also isn't a proper way to then have discussions about what are the benefits of self-reporting? Uh, you know, how does one actually engage with the ACCC about what is the appropriate level of penalty for any particular uh, infraction? And that's particularly true, and I know we're going to get to unfair, but when we talk about a very nebulous concept about unfairness in circumstances where uh, it may not be the case that there's any real consumer harm associated with something which is unfair, you've got a, a, a proposed legislation which will, again, is deliberately structured to say that there will be multiple 
thousands of contraventions when you're using the same contract across multiple consumers. And I'm not sure whether that's an appropriate starting point. I look forward to this debate on unfairness. I think that's going to be meaty, but perhaps unsurprising, I do have some different views to Patrick on appropriate nature of penalties and self-reporting. Uh, very different perspective here. I hope that companies self-report because it's the right thing to do, not because they can get a discount on a penalty. Um, but I also hope that they have in the back of their minds that if they don't self-report, they will pay a higher penalty if they get caught out later. That, that's the entire point of this penalties regime. You need to have something that focuses and sharpens the minds around boardrooms and amongst executives. How do we make sure that this isn't the cost of doing business? Um, and we have seen in the past, actually, that that has been the case. Um, we, it really came home to me when we did some calculations around the free range egg issues that the ACCC prosecuted around 2011 through to 2016. Some of the penalties on those cases where, you know, companies were selling eggs that were, you know, barn raised as free range, they made a significant amount of money. Um, we calculated in 2014 the amount that the industry would have made from selling barn raised, raised eggs as free range would be in the scale of 20 to 26 million. And the penalties that those companies received were in the 50,000, a few hundred thousand range. Penalties need to be significant. And I think penalties for multiple breaches should also draw businesses' minds to how do they treat their customers. It, it encourages the right behavior that we want to see in the world. So we've had a bit of a discussion there about self-reporting. Delia, how does the ACCC think about self-reporting? We do encourage self-reporting. The first thing I would say is the vast majority of self-reports um, go no further. It's very rare that we will end up in court with an, where someone has self-reported. There are certain factors though that make it more likely that we will. So if it's a priority area that we're focusing on, if it becomes clear to us that there was a very long period of time between when the company found out about the breach and when they told us, and also just as importantly, if not more importantly, when they started to take remedial action, those are the sorts of factors. Um, and if, if, if there's real detriment involved too, those are the sorts of factors which will make us consider taking a case where someone self-reported. There is always a lot of discussion around the commission table when it's a self-report and there's a recommendation to go to court because we don't want to disincentivize people from self-reporting. Um, and in the few cases that I've seen where we have gone to court, we've certainly applied a significant discount. I think average is around about 50% where there was a self-report. And these were matters, cases where the conduct went for, on for a long period of time. There was a considerable period in each instance between when it was discovered and when we were told about, about it. And there was also a very long lag before anything was done about providing redress to the consumers involved. Okay. Thanks very much. Could I just um, follow up that discussion? So we've talked about having a, the broad range in the penalties, but it's not only a broad range in terms of penalties, but also, you know, the FCC has at its disposal a whole range of enforcement tools from infringement notices through undertakings. How does the FCC go about deciding what is the appropriate remedy in any particular circumstance? It, this is something, again, we spend a lot of time sitting around the table talking about we look at things like the gravity of the conduct, the size of the entity, the extent of the detriment, how long it's been going on for, were they on notice, had they had complaints for ages and they'd done nothing about it. All of those factors um, 
was it a single soul was senior management involved they're kind of similar to the french factors a lot of the things we look at all of those issues will go to whether or not we decide to go to court or have an infringement notice you'll have seen we've had a few infringement notices recently in our funerals investigations they're small entities um, but they're they were all examples of issues we were seeing across the sector that we wanted to send a strong message about and then where we've got really huge consumer detriment um, we are much more likely to end up in court Karen, from your perspective, um, does choice as an organisation have a view as to when matters should be settled, when they should go to court? I, it's very similar to the, the factors that Delia mentioned. I, I think you need to consider the behaviour of the company itself, um, you know, self-reporting or were, were they caught doing the wrong thing, the nature of the harm, who was harmed. But I also think there's always value in taking some issues where it does test a particularly important component of the law. Sometimes cases that take things a little bit further are really important to do as well. So there can be a range of factors and I think uh, the ACCC just needs the flexibility to, to figure it out on a case-by-case -case basis. And just thinking about your role at Choice, do you ever um, raise directly with organisations conduct that might be of concern? I, this is a great question because sometimes it might appear that we only talk about uh, things publicly and surprise companies, um, but actually we, we do this case by case. We take it from the perspective of what's the best way to get the best outcome for consumers. Sometimes that's going publicly immediately and we base that particularly on the way that businesses will often react when we try to approach them privately. I'd say nine times out of ten they react very poorly. They threaten, um, they might try to loop us into legal arguments that don't apply. We've got some great lawyers in our corner that help us out there. Um, they might try to stop the publication rather than deal with the underlying issue. Very rarely do companies try to deal with the problems that we're raising. And we do find that PR or media interventions or discussions with regulators, it's the quickest way for us to get a great outcome for consumers. Um, but in situations where we haven't worked with that company before or the issue we think can be resolved privately, we will go to those companies. We will try to fix it. And I'd say that the one in 10 companies that do respond well um, will celebrate their behaviour where we can. We had an issue with um, last year, it was very 2020 problem, hand sanitizer issues. Um, some companies were selling hand sanitizer that they said was effective, it needs to have at least 70% alcohol to actually work against viruses. One company we caught out selling something with about 14% alcohol in their hand sanitizer. They, they called my team, they, they threatened them, they tried to get us to stop publication. They were eventually taken to court and fined and they deserved every dollar. Um, another company, similar, exact same issue. We, we told them before our publication, I didn't get a call from a PR team. I got a call from the CEO and they explained what they were doing to remediate customers. They were issuing immediate recall and they wanted to know what else they could do. And when we did publish on that, we celebrated that company. I couldn't think of an, anything else they could have done to help their customers or do the right thing. So I, I guess this is, this is my plea for everyone who may be working with clients who may hear something that Choice is about to publish. Please call us and take it seriously because we, we will deal with companies really respectfully and we want to help them do the right thing by their customers. Michael, from your perspective, where do you see sort of consumer issues being raised? Um, do you see a role for organisations like Choice in raising um, issues with you? Well, absolutely. And I mean, I... I don't know, Erin, on, on whether we've responded well or poorly. I know on some we have responded well, so I'll, I'll call that out. And with Alan, we've had some very, very good and productive discussions. And um, look, 
you know, I think one of the things that um, has been a real lesson and maybe one of the bigger cultural changes for big organisations is even when you're getting it right 99% of the time for customers, that 1% is a big number. And those weak signals that come through the organisation about what might be happening in the 1% um, are sometimes hard for us to pick up. And so we rely on, in some ways, uh, advocates of all kinds to help us see what the, what's happening with those 1%. And we have a very, you know, and it's, it's probably only the last few years, that, that from, from my perspective, a very structured process about how we deal with those one percenters and how we deal with those issues and to treat them, you know, a, a sort of a four-step process of saying, first of all, what can we do to remediate that customer immediately? Two, what do the behaviours look like and what do we need to change that cause that to happen and what are the other actions that we need to take internally? Three, what can I do from an, an analysis perspective to say, where else might this be happening across our entire, our entire customer base? And then four, going and proactively and working through the remediation from that analysis proactively. And I know uh, we've had some issues around uh, that choices raised around elderly customers, and that's exactly what we did. And we identified, we identified some issues, particularly with full authorities around potential elder abuse, and we identified a lot of other issues sparked by issues raised through choice. Now we get them through our complaints and we get them through other things as well, but it often it, it's it's a little bit the needle in the haystack. And my my call out to all advocates that I speak to and also to financial counsels and is please tell us because I go we go that is a rigorous process we go through to to make sure you see those things. And I think that the Royal Commission has been, you know, Banking Royal Commission was a big wake up call on on that, which is those tail of issues. Obviously, if you're doing something systemically, fundamentally wrong, that is that is completely against our values to do it. But you know, we can make mistakes. But it's more often than not what we see is these unintended outcomes, and they end up being for us quite big numbers. So, absolutely welcome that call out. And um, uh, you know, we we are my door, and I know I try to make sure Telstra Store is open to all and every advocate to try to give us that information. To, to, to call out those issues so that we can see if they're systemic, we can see if they're happy and we can see what we need to do. And actually, just to, to support that, something that Telstra does that I think is quite rare, there's a there's a CEO roundtable that's run with advocates directly to hear from them at a regular point. It's one of maybe two or three large organisations that has that forum that, that really does encourage frank feedback. And I know Telstra is not perfect, but I think systems like that really goes, uh, it, it shows a commitment to listening and acting. But I'd love to see more companies adopt. Thank you. Patrick, I mean, we're talking about sort of regulator action and we're talking about consumer um, organisations speaking up. Is there also a role for private enforcement and class action proceedings in this type of area? Well, I mean, uh, there obviously is increased interest in class actions and I, and undoubtedly, um, you know, when we're advising clients and we're talking about potential um, ACL contraventions, you know, very quickly the class action team is involved in saying, you know, what what does this mean from a class action perspective? So, uh, I mean, that's talking about when a problem has occurred or when a potential issue has arisen, uh, you know, but, but clearly, um, you know, the active uh, funding, active cases which are going on, um, you know, when we're talking about sort of penalties and obviously 
pecuniary penalties and actions from the ACCC have focused the mind of uh, corporate Australia, uh, both when something happens, but also in that culture of compliance and so forth. So there's no doubt I would agree with what Delia and Michael have said. Um, you know, there's been a big change in in sort of the perspective and and trying to sort of integrate um, consumer issues into the culture of organizations. And there can be no doubt that the emergence of civil penalties by, you know, through the ACL has had a role with that. Uh, you know, it focuses the mind. Uh, but I think also, uh, in, you know, depending on what the segment is, um, clearly the emerging class actions uh, material uh, is going to have that, um, is going to have that effect as well. And I guess I'd be interested hearing from Delia about, you know, what what is the ACCC's perspective on uh, on class actions? Because because clearly there can be an uncertainty or, uh, you know, when you're talking about settlement of a particular matter with the ACCC about what are the consequences of making the admission or actually reaching an understanding uh, with the ACCC and whether or not uh, that just encourages a much bigger problem on the class action front. I had a chat to our head of enforcement about his views on class actions before this, and he said, the first thing to say is it shouldn't be assumed that we will get involved. Um, and certainly our experience with the VW matter was it, it really slowed us down. Um, and often with class actions, um, they don't always align with the public interest and, and the things that we're trying to achieve. But that said, we can help with fact findings where we have brought a, an action on the same matter. Um, so that's basically where we're at with it. Yeah. Look, we've had a really interesting question from the audience, which is what role do trade organisations play in these consumer matters? And is there scope for more preventative measures to be employed by companies, perhaps through trade organisations? I'm going to pipe in just for a little bit. I'm going back more to my financial services days. But in my experience, when you want to change um, behaviour in a sector, you are better off dealing one by one with the organisations and the trade organisation. My experience with them is on the whole, um, they go to the bottom common denominator. So they, they, they're less likely to be brave. So if we wanted to see something good done for consumers in the telco area, we'd be much more likely to go straight to, um, and I don't mean to pick out any particular trade organisation, we'd go straight to Telstra and, and the other organisations. Um, and inevitably you get to have a more honest conversation and better results is my experience. I'll second that. Um, we're actually currently dealing with an issue um, it's slightly outside of the consumer law, it's more of an ASIC matter, but um, about landlord insurers pursuing tenants um, when there's been accidental or unintentional damage. Um, awful cases, really heartbreak, heartbreaking cases and deep hardship. Um, We've actually found that insurers have a wide range of practices and we're getting a, a lot more from having these direct discussions to understand why, why are they good players, why, are some, why do some players have much more harmful practices. And the trade organisations or the industry peak bodies, they are, they're there to represent the average or the lowest common denominator. They're not there to necessarily push for higher standards. You're much more likely to see that from an outlier organisation or, or a leading organisation that's looking to do the right thing. I might talk, move now to talk a bit about sort of organisational compliance. And and Michael, perhaps to you, you know, what does a culture of compliance mean to you and, and how does Telstra seek to demonstrate its lived compliance? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, a culture of compliance means that compliance with the law is a minimum. I mean, that, 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 is, that is a minimum. What you really look for in a culture of compliance is then those behaviours being embedded into the organisation where you see behaviours where people are actively questioning and actively making the trade-offs for what, what is right versus what is easy, what is right versus what is, you know, gives an immediate sort of commercial outcome. And when you see um, the organisation and people in the organisation say willing to delay something, delay a launch, delay a product going to market when, when they can see that it's not, you know, all of the design mandates that we would have are not being met and they make those trade-offs. I think they're, they're really important indicators um, of compliance. I mean, I think the, the, the other one is um, when you can, when you see all the way down into the organisation that there are behaviours that people will not walk past and that they will call out those behaviours. And I, and I go to behaviours because I think it is those, the principles of knowing what is right, doing what is right and knowing what the priorities are where those customer outcomes come first and other things come second and you actively see those trade-offs being made all the way through the organisation, I think is, is what defines a culture of compliance. Um, and that's, that's why, you know, I sort of made the point around the sort of principle versus prescriptive can become challenging because so often many of our compliance programs become very clogged up with the, the, the meeting the prescriptive outcomes um, and what's super important is that we keep bringing the organisation back to what are the behaviours that we expect and how do we want people to trade things off. And I think that comes from leadership, but where you, where you, the markers that you know you have it is when you can, you can see it all the way through the organisation where people are actively making those trade-offs um, and putting those things first. So, I mean, I, I would say, you know, I suspect, um, you know, to be to be candid, I I would expect, um, given you know the size of our organisation and what's happened recently, that you know I would I would expect the HLC or the ACMA not to think we're all the way there yet on having an adequate compliance culture. And we I try to keep that restlessness in my mind that that it's a moving target that we need to keep doing more. But it's um it, it's all about behaviours and the beliefs that you have in the organisation to make those trade-offs and the compliance to the law should be an outcome from that. Thanks. I think, you know, it raises, that last point you made raises a very interesting issue because, Delia, it must be quite hard for the Commission to know, you know, what you're dealing with sometimes. I mean, sometimes it'll be very obvious that it's an individual bad actor and sometimes it'll be very obvious that it's a company that doesn't care at all and doesn't put any effort into it. But a lot of the time you may find that it's an organisation that's trying quite hard or that just hasn't devoted enough resources. How do you unpick that and work out where the company is on that journey of creating the right culture? Oh, look, it's a really interesting question, Linda. I think part of what you do is you look at their complaints, you see whether or not they react to them, whether they take action, um, and where somebody is proactive, we are way less likely to, to get upset. If I was to give an example of what has been some of the worst compliance culture I've seen in the job, I go back a few years to um, the energy mis-selling, door-to-door sales and energy. Um, now that selling was done by the marketing companies who were employed as contractors to the, the energy companies. 
But once we started to look at it, it was clear that they were on notice. They had had so many complaints about the fact that customers were being missold to in their name um, and hadn't taken action on it, which was why in that instance, we went in very hard. Where we can see someone's trying to do the right thing, we are always going to be go easier, I think, that is the right way of putting it. Um, but it is looking at that internal culture, you know, are compliance reports brought up to senior management on a regular basis? Are complaints identified, systemic issues identified and action taken in a timely way? Um, and we know that most people are trying to do the right thing and will sometimes get it wrong. So, you know, we're not out to punish people just for the sake of punishing them. We, we have limited resources, so we prefer to target our resources where we think that we're going to have the biggest bang. And that will be going to where places where there have been real slip-ups in compliance. Well, we might sort of now look to the, to the future and future developments. And Patrick, can I ask you a question? Is there a danger that we're really asking consumer law to do too much? Um, because it now touches not only sort of principles-based consumer law, but moves into the regulation of business-to-business -business relationships and impacting sort of power dynamics in what are essentially commercial relationships. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is interesting that it's called the Australian consumer law, uh, whereas you look at a lot of the provisions now and where a lot of the ACCC activity is, is really in the, in the B2B space. You know, so when you're thinking about uh, recent proceedings in unconscionable conduct, um, obviously, even where things are consumers, when you look at consumer guarantees, you're a consumer if you buy something up to a value of $100,000. Um, you look at the changes or proposed changes to the uh, unfair contract terms, and they really are regulating, you know, regulating B2B conduct um, in addition to Australian consumer law. And I believe Rod's even on the record that he thinks the laws should change or the name should change to from the Australian consumer law to the Australian consumer and fair trading law, I think. Is that right? I, I can't recall something along that. I, I recall him saying at one stage. So, I mean, I mean, business to business conduct, you know, sometimes needs to be brusque and, and needs to be difficult. And, you know, you need to, um, push a particular position in certain circumstances. And, and there is a bit of, I think, arguably a bit of mission creep, uh, you know, where you're sort of saying concepts of fairness, uh, concepts of consumer protection, and moving those into a B2B uh, area and, and making an assumption that somehow there's a, a uh, you know, that a particular uh, business on either side needs all of the same protections that a consumer uh, requires and so I mean I do think there is a danger of of mission creep when you look at the kind of broad freight trading regime. I'm sure Delia and Aaron are going to tell me otherwise. I think you're right there, Patrick. We are going to say otherwise. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the how small most small businesses are, they are tiny. They're like the size of your average family or smaller, um, and they are just as unsophisticated on the whole as consumers are in terms of knowledge about their rights. And they are often there's often a really significant power imbalance between them and their suppliers or the people they're renting their office from, and all of those things. So they don't get all of the same rights as consumers, but they do get many. Um, and it's been particularly relevant in the unfair contract terms provisions. So 
it, it, it seems very, when you look at the number of them that go under as well, it seems very clear and fair to me that they get these protections. And it's not like um, the other business is going to be punished if they haven't done anything wrong. It's only where there has been misconduct that there are consequences. So we very much as an organisation believe that small businesses do need some additional help. Um, and so, and we've been also very much behind um, penalties for unfair contract terms, which I suspect we may disagree upon as well, because what we've seen with those laws is there's absolutely no incentives to comply. You know, the big sectors do the right things. We put out lots of guidance. We saw them go through terms and conditions and fix things, but all of the smaller ones, not so much. And so I've lost my train of thought for a second. Because there are no penalties, the worst that can happen is you go to court and the term is void. You know, we will pursue, 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 they won't do anything, get to the steps of the court, they say, oh, well, okay, we will change this term. And without penalties, the incentives aren't there. So we are very much in favour of the government's reforms in this particular area, or proposed reforms. Michael, from your perspective, what do you see as the biggest impact of these proposed changes to introduce a new unfair contract um, prohibition? Well, I mean, I I, I think it, it it I mean, I think the biggest impact is that it 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 applies another another standard that we need to work through. I mean, I think um, unfair and fair, as as Patrick put out, is a, is a sort of a a nebulous concept, and it's in context, but it is a principle around fairness, that there will be a, a body of law that will be established based on uh, how the courts find it. And I think, um, you know, from from a from a corporate perspective, um, the last thing we want to do is to create contracts that are inherently unfair. Uh, we want to have long-term relationships with our customers. We want to create long-term value for our shareholders. Um, and as I said, the, the we, we would always look at compliance to these laws as an outcome of doing what is right and having a sustainable business. So I know that's a slightly diplomatic answer, but that's that's the way uh, that, that we would think about it is that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't trip up on these things uh, on, on purpose. Our intent would be never to create a contract that was unfair. And if there was, as you said, you said complaints or, 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 or customers of any size that were claiming they were unfair, then I would hope that we would look to adjust those with or without those laws. Look, and I, I think, um, Michael, you gave the example earlier about sort of overly prescriptive um, codes and regulations in certain areas. And certainly um, I've been on the record as, as saying to um, Rod at the ACCC that, you know, if the ACCC argues for an unfair um, contract provision, then it would actually be helpful um, to at the same time recognise that that could lead to the removal of other more prescriptive, potentially inconsistent layers of regulation, because just adding another one on top um, can create the sorts of problems that Michael referred to earlier. And I think conceptually, you know, Rod himself has described it as a bit of a potentially deregulatory um, tool, because he, as he said, you don't need a lot of these other things. Um, and if that's the case, I think, you know, it's important to then ensure that those other things are removed. And, you know, we accept that there are lots of um, questions then about industry-specific regulation and how you manage those issues. But um, 
the more that processes and levels of prescription can be simplified, um, both from a consumer point of view um, and a corporate point of view, I think there's something to be said from that. I mean, Erin, from your perspective, Michael spoke earlier about, you know, customers getting three different sets of forms, which are sometimes overlapping. I mean, is increased disclosure always the best thing from a consumer perspective? Oh, no, often it's an awful outcome. But I think it's useful to think about where these things came from. And in terms of, you know, the idea of removing them, is the industry mature enough and ready to let go of that? Um, I think we we can go back in history a bit. Um, I, I actually started my career at ACAN, the Communications um, Consumer Advocacy Organization. And I was working there at a time where telecommunications companies were doing really harmful things to customers. They were selling incredibly complex products that were hard to understand that led to people taking on a lot of debt and getting these outrageous bills in the 10,000 or even the $100,000 um, kind of range uh, just for using their mobile phone a bit too much and not necessarily understanding the impact of doing that with data. That, that's why this regulation exists. Now, I, I do think that the telecommunication industry has, has grown up a bit. The, the products are simpler, they're easier to understand, they're more affordable, there are limits. So you can start to talk about removing those kind of prescriptive regulations when the problem has been dealt with. But um, often they, they come about for a reason and, and quite often, those disclosure remedies, they're put in with the full support of industry. As consumer advocates, we want the problem dealt with. We want it gone away. I don't, I don't want people to be told about the problem. I want no problem. But uh, often industries will uh, push for the lighter regulatory touch option, which is just to tell people about issues rather than clean up the mess. Yeah, and Erin, I think that's a, can I just make a call? I think that is a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great call out and I think a lot of industries, not just telcos, have, have used disclosure as a way to continue with things. And, and I think, you know, if I look at the changes that Telstra has made and other, other industry participants have made, it has been to try to remove excess data charges and remove contracts and remove things that create that debt or created those issues rather than more disclosure. Um, interestingly, the disclosure ones I described were all about NBN contracts, but it never had any of those issues. But anyway, I mean, I, I think. <laughs> I think Linda's call out is is absolutely right. I mean, they were they were there to deal with specific issues, and if if the term is the contract has to be fair and unfair, and we can make a judgment on that, um, then you know then they should be removed. And and for industry, I guess as they come along, some of those prescriptive ones do do, do provide sort of a to your point a safe harbour. I've done everything you said, um, but uh, you know I think a principles based approach is. You know, is always better when the industry is mature enough. So, like, it's a good call. So, we're coming close to the end of time. So, a final call out to our audience for any questions that you want to pose, please put them in your chat box now. Patrick, from your perspective, these proposed reforms, how do you think they're going to impact business and advice to business? Well, I mean, I, I you know, I think that I agree with Michael. I mean, um, you know the the larger organizations and so forth uh, have gone through their you know their their regimes and look for unfair contract terms I think uh, carefully and I don't suspect there will be a huge change uh, to those organizations they'll clearly do another review and another check and so forth but I think as a general proposition most of the, our clients in that kind of space have erred on the side of caution already now uh, and so, uh, so I don't think there will be a, a massive change for, from some organizations. I, I do think uh, that there will be inevitably a extra 
layer of caution, uh, you know, which I think Delia and Aaron will say, well, that's a good thing. And I think might actually be impeding on, you know, normal general commercial activity. But I will get on my hobby horse one last time to just say it is an inherently uncertain concept. And the idea that someone would be subject to the same to level the same of pecuniary penalty um, for an unfair contract term, contract term um, as compared um, as to something um, does seem to me to be uh, a little bit ridiculous. I, I wish I shared your optimism about um, contracts being largely sorted, Patrick. I, I encourage you to go have a look at the choice submission to the recent inquiry because we, we we listed some examples of unfair contract terms that are out there now from some very large organisations, particularly large tech organisations. The forced arbitration clauses that uh, require consumers not to complain to a tribunal but to go to a, an arbitration process they set up in California. Uh, doozies. They're, they're all over contracts right now that we keep finding them regularly every day. So I, I actually think corporate Australia's got a little bit of work to do on unfair contract terms and some very, very unfair provisions. And, and the, the arguments you're making are very similar to the arguments that were made when the misleading and deceptive um, law came into place. But as Michael said, the courts will make law. It will be, there will be clarity. Our judges are not known to be, you know, wackos. They will take a sensible approach to it. So I, I, I think you've painted a very worst case scenario there. I, I think it will be much smoother. Look, and I think, you know, it's always going to be a learning experience for everyone as we go through this kind of change, and it is quite, you know, fundamental change. Um, and I think, Dilly, your analogy with the introduction of the misleading and deceptive conduct one is a good one. And you know, it did create, um, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember, it did create a lot of, you know, uncertainty and some, you know, changes and exemptions for certain people and case law. Um, but you know, now it's very much, you know, part of the standard diet, and people aren't frightened by it anymore but I think you know there is a transition process that all of these changes go through and we'll um we'll see as the legislation progresses so can I, mean, I... I guess I would say just on that Delia I mean obviously further guidance from the ACCC I know that they gave some guidance in the first uh, in the first step but I mean some sort of transitional period and some sort of further guidance I think looking at you know even perhaps uh, submissions from choice and so forth as to what the ACCC's view is on, on what is an unfair contract term worthy of, uh, of prosecution would be of assistance. Look, we are planning further guidance and any input anyone would like to make about where you feel further guidance is required, we'd be happy to receive. Thanks very much. So um, with that, I might draw this webinar to a close. Can I thank our panellists for generating a really interesting and lively discussion? Can I thank our audience um, for joining us for your questions? Um, and we look forward to a time next year when we can perhaps all gather in person. Um, have a lovely evening and thank you very much, everybody.